Welcome to the Vinyl Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Ruth McIver. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. Ruth McIver is a Dublin-born, Melbourne-based writer. She won the 2018 Richelle Prize for an emerging writer. Today, she's joining us with her hotly anticipated new novel, I Shot the Devil. Reporter Erin Sloan returns to her hometown of Southport. Her dad's sick, and though they haven't always had the best relationship, he's her only family. This is no nostalgia trip, though. Erin's editor wants her to report on the notorious Southport Three, a group of teens implicated in a satanic murder in the 90s. Erin's going to write a story about the group and their legacy, but Erin is also part of the story. She hasn't told her editor that she was dating one of the killers. Will the past stay buried once Erin starts digging? So once again, join me as we discover Ruth McIver's I Shot the Devil. Welcome, Ruth. It's, it's so great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Now, we have got an incredible discussion, I am absolutely sure, coming up. But before we get into it, I'm going to pop a content warning on what we're discussing because I Shot the Devil contains, as um, so many 90s VCRs told me, violence and adult themes. It may get a little... It, it may get a little um, uh, intense, and if people maybe don't want that in their day right now, tune out. But um, let's introduce the book to help people figure it out. In I Shot the Devil, reporter Erin Sloan returns to her hometown of Southport. It's not a nostalgia trip as such, though. Erin's a reporter, and Southport is notorious as the home of the Southport Three, a group of teens implicated in a satanic murder in the 90s. Erin's there to write a story about the group and its legacy, but Erin's also part of the story. She was dating one of the killers. I was hoping we could start off with this genre that we now know as true crime, because I Shot the I Shot the Devil works with true crime conventions, things like an historic crime, the unfolding investigation, the blend of the first person and the archival narration. Erin's a reporter, and while she relies on the police at times... Her investigation is is wholly different to a, maybe a more traditional mystery. I wondered, have we replaced the detective with the true crime reporter in our search for who done it? And I wondered also then, what does that mean in the broader sense of who we trust to find justice in the world? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> that really is. And I think like you know, obviously we did have um, and we have had the amateur sleuth um, in the crime uh, genre for, for some time. But I think you're so right. There's like a new sort of uh, subgenre emerging where the reporter is the person who seeks out uh, exposing miscarriages of justice. And I think that has a lot to do with, um, say, you know, the Southport Three, as, as you could possibly guess, is a bit of a nod to the West Memphis Three. So, you know, uh, a case where uh, teenagers, three teenagers were falsely accused of um, murdering 
little boys in Arkansas. And partly the reason why that they were accused was because of the way that they looked. They were outsiders. They were into uh, heavy metal music um, and they were accused of being involved with witchcraft. And that was in the early 90s. So satanic panic was still going on. Now, you know, obviously these men were going to just kind of, they were in death row, they were going to perish. And and it was, you know, the documentary that actually ended up uh, bringing their story to light and eventually like securing their release. And I think that documentaries and podcasts have been really pivotal in um, exposing these miscarriages of justice. And, um, you know, and even like in Australia, I can think of another example, like Estelle Blackburn, um, uh, with her book, The Age of Innocence, with um, John Button and Eric Edgar Cook's crimes. Um, that was another, um, you know, massive kind of factor in what led to his exoneration. And, uh, you know, so I think journalists really are um, are being more trusted um, than, say, the police to, to uncover these uh, cold cases and um, decades-long um, miscarriages of justice. And, and while this may be slightly tangential, it's interesting also that we're, we're seeing, especially over the last 18 months of the coronavirus and coronavirus reporting, a similar level of interrogation of, of who journalists are and what they yeah. stand for and perhaps a suggestion that they may not be all that they all that they suggest they are because it, it has become so incredibly important whether it be the coronavirus whether it be um, exposes of sexual abuse in the catholic church journalists are the people that are bringing us news that we, we maybe we feel we can't get anywhere else yeah absolutely and i think i mean even like you know when i studied uh like say gothic fiction um and early um, detective fiction. And I think what's really interesting is that from, and this is what I kind of believe, from the roots of um, Gothic fiction, that's where detective fiction kind of emerges from. And I think um, the detective sort of almost has this demonic quality in those early, or like there's there's a sense of darkness about them, like in order for them to, to... uncover the crime and to get into the kind of like say the murderer's mindset or whatever they have to have um aberrance within them too so it's like they have to be super dark and they have to like have that side like Sherlock Holmes you like you fully see that he's Mm. he's you know he's practically evil (laughs) um yeah so so in a way like uh the journalist emerging out of uh, out of that genre is a new kind of evolution um and perhaps like they have to be a little bit wicked too because mm. um they have to have like a ruthful a ruthlessness a ruthfulness a ruthlessness um to them and like you know obviously it's a bit of a cliche of of the the journalist being kind of uh you know unprincipled or um unscrupulous but but kind of like a terrier kind of like mm. coming at coming at you with the truth so and we absolutely like we love it we devour this sort of this sort of stuff in your acknowledgments, though, you talk about the trauma that informed your writing of I Shot the Devil. True crime, though, it's big business and people are drawn to it. Yeah. How do you feel about that tension between trauma oh, as entertainment? Totally. I mean, I, I, I feel very conflicted about it. And, I mean, that's kind of why I did a PhD in that field because I I feel incredibly conflicted about it. And, I, you know, at the same time, I kind of acknowledge my own interest as being one of, you know, bullishness and being really interested in the in, in darkness um, and in those sort of things. Uh, you know, and I, I definitely won't disavow that. But 
I also feel that it's very valid and very understandable and it can be done in an ethical way. And it has, it has the potential for all these great outcomes. Um, so it's, it's just really complex, I think. And I think it's, it's got so much to do with intention as well as delivery. Um, and then, you know, you've got things like one thing that I'm really interested in is like um, how we perceive tasteful true crime because like, you mm. know, say so I read a novel that was written and I'm, I'm not going to name or shame or anything like that. Cause it's not my, it's not my business. Um, but I'm just interested in it. Like, you know, from, from a kind of like ideas point of view um, that it's beautifully written. It's, it's, you know, it's so tasteful in so many ways, but at the same time, it enters the consciousness of the victims. And, you know, it's a male, a cis male author who's entering the um, consciousness of, of um, three raped and murdered teenagers. And it, this book kind of went without a ripple of anyone suggesting that there was anything untoward or untasteful about it. But then say, you know, and I think that largely that's because of the literary, um, you know, in quotation marks, like style. But then, you know, also I think there's a gendered component to it too because, mm. like, say, Emma Klein's The Girls, um, she where she really mutes the violence and she explores the dynamics and the psychology and really focuses on the women um, around the Manson family. She got some really crazy reviews where they were like, why are you writing about this ghoulish, horrific thing? You know, even though she's done this in the most tasteful manner that you can imagine. And also the crimes are significantly more historical. So that also seems to factor into it too. So it's sort of like we can talk about something, you know, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino made a movie uh, recently about the Manson murders. It seems like now a a significant amount of time has passed, but it's like, you know, a lot of it is about what is perceived as tasteful. Um, and and we're not really sort of looking at necessarily what's ethical. I want to I want to come back maybe to why we turn to true crime in a sec, but picking up on what you were just saying there, I, I noted there is a point in the novel where Erin, your protagonist, notes all the boys came from violence; they were violence. All the girls were victims, and yeah. crime stories of every stripe have this dirty history of women wrapped in plastic and and gruff male (laughs) heroes riding in to save the day. Did you want to address this in I Shot the Devil? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there is a sense like, and this was probably my starting point of, um, you know, women kind of being prey animals in in a sense um, and Erin confronting that in herself and her own vulnerability and her own um, sense of peril. And she is surrounded by peril and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely did want to address that. That was a hugely important thing um, for me um, in the novel. But I mean, there are male, there are male victims too. It's just, it's sort of like how the men internalize and then externalize the violence and trauma that they've experienced and how women just internalize it and tend to abuse themselves, um, uh, you know, say with eating disorders and drug addiction and, and suicide and, and that sort of thing. So whereas the, the males would tend to, you know, have the greater tendency to commit violent acts. Yeah, it was, and, and it is really interesting. Sorry, just picking up what you were saying there, the ways that, the violence seems to be consuming, as you say, of of the women, whereas, you know, the male victims have sort of very explosive 
ends. We don't yeah. see that. We don't see that consumption, that eating away that really destroys over time. No, that's right. It's very, and I think that's because trauma is really corrosive and it's sort of like, it is complicated and it, it is largely like, you know, in this day and age, pretty untreatable. Like if you have complicated um, or complex PTSD, the treatments, um, unless you're kind of um, following non-traditional medicine and stuff, they're not great, you know. And I think, um, you know, just if you look at studies and stuff like that, I used to work for this um, school of psychology and psychiatry um, for Monash. And I interviewed um, forensic um, psychiatrists and, um, you know, we talked a lot about um, child abuse and, um, and, and studies of children that had been abused and the outcomes as adults. And it's really, really terribly sad. With women, just so many of them ended in, in suicide, mm. early deaths, you know, and incarceration for, um, for both, but largely more for men. I wonder also, and I'm just, I'm just going to riff on an idea you suddenly put in my head, but I know that... I know that true crime and true crime, whether it be podcasts, whether it be TV shows um, and the like, have incredible um, followership in female audiences. Um, and I wonder like, what do people go to it for? Because it, it feels like there's this cognitive dissonance in the need to call true crime true crime. Now, I know I shot the devil uses true crime show, tropes, but is a fiction. But we call true crime cr- true crime, while crime fiction just enjoys the more prosaic... <laughs> crime <laughs> we have yeah. this we have this strange this strange sort of dissonance but also we turn to true, true crime or, or do you think we turn to the different genres for different reasons are we looking for something different i think i think so i think with crime fiction there's a resolution um in mm. in a, a particular way and i think that um crime fiction and this is you know an idea that i studied in my research and there's a um, theorist called leanne dodd um she talks a lot about crime fiction um as a bibliotherapeutic means because with this kind of um arcs and and sense of resolution oftentimes there's justice at the end mm. um and and even if you know, the reader is almost vicariously traumatised by events, they still have the resolution, which isn't really, um, it doesn't really happen in, in true true cases of trauma, which is, I mean, to, not to sound bleak, but you know what I mean, there is some, this sort of like, and then I was fine. <laughs> but say in, in true crime, I think there's something, for me at least, I feel that it's quite instructional. Um, and I think like... Uh, there is something also about us confronting our deepest fears. Like recently I've been on a total bender of of the Chris Watts case, for example, um, which I kind of noted when it happened in 2018, but I didn't really, and I don't, I I don't entirely understand why I suddenly started reading about it and just getting completely, or maybe I saw there was a show on Netflix and then I started kind of picking up all the books and audio books and everything, but I know why I'm hooked. And part of it is why everyone's hooked. Um, you know, because there's this narrative of, you know, the perfect partner Mm. and you're sleeping next to this person who is plotting your murder and Mm. um, psychopaths who who look like a very ordinary person. I think that's everyone's deepest fear. And I I think especially for women, there's a sense of, um, you know, domestic terror, like, you know, what if the person that I love is like planning on killing me or... (laughs) And, and unfortunately, statistically, that is possible. So it's it's like, and we read these cases and we hear these stories, and and I think that we need to to kind of like learn more so that we feel armed. I think. I mean, I think one of the most traumatic things that I've seen and read 
um, in recent times was the miniseries, uh, docu docu series that they made of "See What You Made Me Do." Jess Hill's oh, Stellar Prize, God. and yeah. I, I can see how true crime would be even a step removed from that, where it does give us that um, that kind of narrative distance and and bibliotherapy that you just talked about. Yeah. Um, and I, oh yeah, sorry. I'll, just gonna oh, okay. yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was just gonna say. I, I that said, like. And this, again, I don't want to sound judgy when I say this because I think everybody, I, there's no kind of, you know, there's no moral judgment on this, but it's just an observation. There are a lot of true crime um, podcasts where I've just heard people discussing cases in this really, really casual kind of cavalier way where it's like, it's almost like those people are kind of just like people they know and it's like they're making jokes. And I find that really, really difficult because yeah. it's almost like, it's cutesy, like it's like true crime is cutesy and it's like become like one o'clock and, you know, true crime. And it's like, hey, man, that's like you're like really not disguising anything with, with mm. that. Like there's, there's kind of just it's like pure entertainment and, and I struggle with that. That's, that's one kind of aspect of, of um, true crime. And then there's obviously, you know, which I kind of draw upon in the book, there's those ridiculous kind of true crime documentaries where it's just super cheesy and you're learning nothing. It's just, um, you know, parroting media stories. Yeah. Oh, so many different directions I want to take us in. I'm just sort of looking at my notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Look, I want to. I want to come. I want to actually come back to. I shot the devil. That's right. There's a book. You wrote this incredible book. Um, the the popular story in the in the novel that is painted of the the '90s killings of the Southport Three. It tells of a satanic ritual and perversion that corrupted these good kids. And in in Danny particularly, mm-hmm. we have. Um, you know, he's he's got a real swim team rapist vibe about him. Um, in that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it also, though, it, I found that that sort of narrative, it links in with narratives of privilege and, and privation. With the, the you, So you've got the victim and the so-called kind of demonic leader of the group, Ricky Hell. He was a person of colour. Did you, <laughs> did you want to tap into the ways that dominant, dominant narratives can be leveraged against marginalised groups and, they, and in, in that sense they pop, prop oh, up I- privilege? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially, you know, um, you know, you're writing and, and, you know, this is of of course the case of Australia too, but, you know, a lot of the cases that I was reading about were American cases and uh, where I set the book in Long Island was where I lived in the nineties, where it was very, very, very obvious to me um, how racial privilege operated. Um, And so I did absolutely want to do that because, you know, minority youth um, committing this crime um, who looked a particular way was going to be, you know, a great scapegoat. Um, And, yes, of course, someone like who's wealthy, who's got that um, exactly what you said, um, swim swim team rapist vibe, um, who has comes from, you know, like a money background, he's a white guy, he's going to get away with it. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, in, in so many of those cases, that's exactly what happens. Um, it's astonishing to me, like, but, but that's the way it is. So it was definitely a conscious um, decision to do that. It's really, and I think it's, it's so amazing what you do and so really important that, that the discussion is had because, I mean, in all, in all the types of reform that we think we might have seen over 30 years, one thing that isn't being reformed is the way we 
tell those stories. And it's not spoiling anything in I Shot the Devil to say that that Danny did it. Uh, at the very early point, you you established that he was he was convicted for his part in the killing, but we very then also quickly see that he enjoys uh, a normal, uh, in fact, a, a, you know, above privileged life of a wealthy person living by the water. Um, it seems like even if even convicted, that sort of white privilege lives lives out the the, the white fantasy. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And I mean, this book was very loosely based on a true crime. And one of the, the things that really intrigued me was one of the key players uh, was actually acquitted. And, uh, you know, I read an interview with him and he was so detached and so cavalier and so unaffected. And his life was the same and he lived on the island. And I just remember thinking, you know, wow, he just fully got away with it. And, um, you know, it's it's quite incredible. But, you know, he had a really, really great um, criminal attorney who's uh, he's pretty famous, actually. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that he, he was based he was based very loosely on that character. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it doesn't I mean, I guess I shot the devil doesn't go so much into it but the um what you just mentioned there about the the power of being able to use wealth and privilege to just hire the right people hire and again what are lawyers other than people who know how to tell the story in the right way to get the results totally and you know this is the thing like you know in australia this is you know this is just an absolute travesty like you know like you're an indigenous youth and you get um, convicted of a crime, you can be in prison when you're like a child, pretty much. So, yeah, it's it's horrific, and I, you know, I hoped to highlight that in the book. Um, and you know, obviously, the, I don't want to spoil any of the the twists, <laughs> but there are twists surrounding that, um, obviously. So. Let's go. Let's go then to this whole like. There's yeah. We can't spoil anything, but the book is also incredible with all of these twists. And one of the compelling aspects that I want to hook people on is the way that you you write this, the way that you create these twists, and the way you work across a range of styles in unfolding the story. I particularly liked the way you had multiple competing narratives written by members of the Southport Three, and I just wanted to know, like, how did you how did you get yourself into these voices and then create these different styles? Because I mean, you range it ranges from your incredible narrative written from sort of the Aaron first point, first person point. Then we have Aaron writing confessionals. Then you have kind of slightly bad novelizations from like, <laughs> like how, do you, how do you go from writing well to deliberately writing kind of a little bit bad and encapsulate all of these voices? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, that was really fun actually to to do like a melodrama, like and and you know these kind of like um, highly suspicious sort of, uh, <laughs> and and I think also for me what I really like, uh, what I really enjoyed doing also was just creating textual dredge, you know, like with some um, texts and emails and stuff because, uh, you know, I, I'm very as a writer like you're very attuned to that sort of thing, and you know we're we're in a digital age where we're we're getting narratives all the time. We're, we're seeing text all the time and, you know, you're hyper attuned and sensitive to it. And, and, um, and just how like say a text message 
with like an ellipsis for me can send me into a spiral. <laughs> like, what's that ellipsis about? Uh, but uh, yeah, with the with the voices, I had to work really hard to make sure that they were discreet because it's really hard not to. Um, Blur voice. I think with most most authors that I know that have done um, multiple perspectives, uh, you know, agree with that. You know, you you do have to make sure that you're not doing that. I mean, obviously, I wrote them separately, um, but there is a little bit of kind of like ventriloquizing and and invoking the character, um, which is you know just part of the kind of weird mystery and magic of creating um, characters who kind of really actually come to life and their voice really comes through like it's like sometimes it does feel like a mystical thing because you're just sort of like you're you're channeling a person many of these characters are not sympathetic as we come to learn but i would imagine having to be inside their head to write their narrative as as they perceive it you would have to develop some sympathy for them is that tough uh yes i think it is tough and it's like but at the same time you've got to think about your your villains and, and like think about them what's the worst thing that ever happened to them or you know what's the damage that's happened in their life how what made them that way and I think you know it's got a lot to do with like forgiveness and stuff too and there are some characters that just won't get any sympathy and I'm not afraid to punish <laughs> I'm not afraid to punish the oh, wicked I, in my books <laughs> I noticed <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's so cathartic, I've got to say. Um, yeah, but there are like, you know, it's, it's, I think it is, it is challenging, but I think when you start to kind of like, and it's interesting cause I'm doing a read along at the moment, um, as in there is a read along going along with my book. So there are people in different locations reading it, which is, is really exciting, but also horrifying as a, as a, you know, someone who doesn't want to read their own work even, um, and watching, and listening to their reactions to the characters that are unsympathetic is really, really fascinating. Like I'm seeing a lot of sympathy, um, sympathy for Carol in particular, which I'm, I'm interested in. Oh, really? I mean, it's such a rogues gallery. I, I just, I was about <laughs> to say I find her the least, and then I was like, no way, this is Steve. No way, this is Danny. No, Steve. <laughs> Steve is. I think Steve's got to be the worst. I mean, that's just my. Yeah, that's my feeling. But Carol is very unpleasant, I have to say. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I, but I kind of like how unpleasant and, like, awful she is too on a level. Um, but, yeah, I love the, I love the, um, the challenge as a reader of mm. reading a book um, with an unsympathetic uh, character and starting to feel almost like, it's almost like you're being brainwashed in a weird way. You're like, damn it, like how am I suddenly kind of empathising with them or, you know, and that's like, you know, that's what happens if it's if it's done well, I think. So mm. hopefully I did it well, you know. I, it's it's always hard to know. And, like, I guess that's where, you know, hearing other, like hearing readers, um, you know, tell me how they feel. It's, it's, it's just wild. I love it. And so you just got me thinking now. I'm like, Steve, I think if you if you were to just dot, kind of dot point Steve's evil, yeah, you could make a compelling case for him being the absolute worst. But it, as I thought about it, I was like, there's something about the competition between Steve and Danny where 
Steve, Steve's almost like a he, he's he's evil, but he's a pulled himself up by his bootstraps evil. He did a lot of what he did because because <laughs> he didn't come from the same sort of privilege as Danny. Whereas Danny's just kind of like, I'm I'm going to be evil, and I don't even have a, like a good reason. Like I could just live yeah. a comfortable <laughs> life. I'm going to be evil because yeah. I chose to. <laughs> I met a lot of those kind of bros um, in uh, you know where, the area where I lived, which was like uh, you know an affluent area in Long Island and there was a lot of those kind of, um, you know, that type of masculinity on display. Interestingly enough, when I was living there at this, at the time, um, I, you know, the Amy Fisher case um, where it's, it's, she was called the lethal Lolita. Ah, like it sounds um, vaguely familiar, but I yeah, don't. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great, um, <laughs> a great nickname to have. Um, but there was like telly movies made about her, like Drew Barrymore played her, Alyssa Milano played her. So it was like these different, um, in two different versions, there might've been a third version with a lesser known actress. Um, so it, got, it was a huge, huge case. She actually became a porn star. Okay. And she was like, it's she she became you know internet famous. So she was like a teenager who went to this the high school that my brother went to. She was in the same year or maybe a year above him, and I wasn't yet in high school there. But mm. that would be the high school that I would go on to um, for a year. And uh, yeah, so she was like a sixteen year old girl had an affair with a married man who was her mechanic. And um, uh, she tried to knock off his wife and she shot her and she, you know, did a lot of damage to Mary Jo Badafuko. She ended up, you know, the case was just huge. It was absolutely, mm. you know, enormous. And um, my brother and his friends were all being interviewed and stuff. One of my brother's friends drove her past the house when she was like casing out the house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and like a lot of his friends, like I met at the time, they were these kind of guys, you know, like mm. um, affectless, privileged, um, you know, there was just so much toxic masculinity um, mm. in that time and also that place. So yeah, like I was like observing that as like a preteen girl mm. and then kind of just storing it away for later use. Wow. So so where does that leave us then? Because you've sort of just mentioned <clears throat> that privilege, even if it doesn't reach the level of kind of evil and violence is there. Um, you were talking about in your book, you're not afraid of a little bit of just desserts. And to be, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I'd be staying away from, from sharp, blunt force trauma implements <laughs> if I were in, in Southport. Um, but we've also talked about how one of, the, one of the aspects of true crime is, unlike mystery, it doesn't have that, that neat denouement in the conservatory of an old manor house type of ending. Do you think that yeah. uncertainty, is that something that we just now have to live with as part of our modern condition? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like I really didn't want a neat ending in a bow because I don't feel that that's the way that, yeah, that that true crime plays out. And, for example, with the West Memphis Three, while they were released, um, they were never, they had to sign something, which meant that they never really got acquitted of the crimes. And so, you know, I know that Damien Eccles wrote a book after his experience and I I used to follow him on... um, Facebook when I was on it and I re- read his posts coming out of prison and I, you know, I, I, he, he suffered such intense trauma and he was in prison, you know, since he was 18, you know, and he's like, he's like my age. And I just feel like 
So, yes, there is some kind of um, resolution. There is some form of justice, but it's totally imperfect and it's not going to be neatly resolved. And I feel like I wanted it to be satisfying for the reader, though, because I didn't want it to be too bleak, but I wanted it to be real. It brings me back to one of the first questions I asked about, you know, that that difference between the, the, the genres of crime and true crime and, and why we turn to them. And maybe in writing a crime fiction about in a true crime style, maybe you're giving us something like the best of all worlds because we, we can take the distance, but we can also take the uncertainty. And, and if we choose, bring some sort of resonance and, and uh, tie it up a little bit for ourselves. Like you can get to the end and Erin gets to go home with her cat, and we yeah. can feel a little bit okay about that. I fit the cat in somewhere in the end there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mister is fine. To anyone who wants to know, everyone gets to keep their cat, and everything's safe. Mm. But yeah, she she does get to, and and I think there is some sort of um, resolution, or like, okay, so she's not going to go on like flat tummy tea and like become a fitness fanatic, perhaps, mm-hmm. but you know, she's going to have some kind of uh, resolution in her mind. And I, I think, yeah, that's 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 really good to know that, it, you know, it can have both of those tropes and, and, and so you can get that kind of true crime trauma, mm. but then the crime fiction resolution. Mm. Also, you know, I wanted things to be, I like to leave a little bit of space for people to kind of like imagine and also make their own conclusions like I, you know I don't want everything to be so cut and dry and be like this is this and you know spoon feed everything I like to create some sort of you know some places for the reader to enter and kind of like draw their own conclusions and mm-hmm. you know make up their own parallel storylines which I'm seeing in the read-along which is really cool and sometimes I'm like oh wow why didn't I think of that why didn't I do that <laughs> so I'll tell you mine after we finish the interview proper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am speaking with Ruth McIver. Her new novel, I Shot the Devil, is an absolute powerhouse. It's you know, I'm in lockdown and it I just took me away for a week and oh, so good. <laughs> I love I love that you've done that. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on Final Draft. Thanks so much, Andrew. I love speaking to you. That's it for this great conversation with Ruth McIver. Ruth's new novel is I Shot the Devil. It's out now from Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Now, I want you to stay in touch, but I also want to let you know, I had the most incredible conversation with Ruth and there are some outtakes. I'm going to release them in a part two. They are spoiler heavy outtakes. Very funny. Lots of cats, lots of Guns N' Roses references. But if you haven't read I Shot the Devil yet, approach part two with caution. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. You'll get part two as well as all future great conversations every week. My name's Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.